and welcome back to another episode of Oral Max Facts, bringing you the most evidence-based practice guidelines in oral and maxillofacial surgery. So today I am back again with Dr. Jimmy Harper, bringing you another topic on anesthetic complications. So last time we recorded an episode, we did hypertension as anesthesia complication and its management. So today, going along the same line of cardiac complications, we are going to be discussing hypotension and its management during anesthesia. So once again, this is not a detailed discussion on what is hypotension and its medical management, neither is it a medical advice or substitute for referring to a medical textbook. Our purpose with this podcast is to bring you a quick overview on the topic, the contributing factors, how to evaluate a patient, and when should you intervene, and how should you go about managing it in your office. So why are we talking about hypotension? Well, besides being the most common hemodynamic complication during anesthesia, increasing body of literature is now showing evidence that even brief durations of systolic arterial pressure below 100, or MAP of less than 60 to 70, are harmful during non-cardiac surgery. So in general, a blood pressure during anesthesia should be maintained within 20% of patients' baseline with systolic blood pressure of greater than 100 and a mean arterial pressure of greater than 65 so that we can avoid systemic injuries to major organs such as heart, kidneys, and of course the brain. So Dr. Harper, thank you again for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you. So why don't we start with another on-site case like we did with hypertension. Again, I'm choosing one of the on-site published questions by ABOMS. Here's the question. While under general anesthesia for a maxillary mandibular advancement procedure on a sleep apnea patient, patient is exhibiting significant hypotension. Preoperatively, the patient's baseline blood pressure was 170 over 90, on preoperative physical exam, the patient had jugular venous distension and a parasternal PMI. In this circumstance, what is the most appropriate management of hypotension? Well, from a physical uh, diagnosis standpoint, the key here, I think, is in the physical exam, you noted JVD, distended jugular veins, and a medial displaced PMI suggestive of a, of a right-sided heart uh, issue, and probably secondary to this patient who has Obstructive sleep apnea probably develops um, at night uh, some pretty significant pulmonary um, hypertension. And, and so I would look for evidence of um, an S3 gallop and also check patagegular reflex. Both of those are pretty highly sensitive for uh, congestive heart failure. Uh, and hopefully I would have picked that up prior to taking the patient to the operating room, uh, had the patient evaluated with an echo and probably a cardiac consult to optimize this patient's um, uh, underlying uh, cardiac failure and pulmonary hypertension. Uh, with that said, um, as I look at this patient uh, and, and think about right-sided heart failure, especially with pulmonary hypertension, you know, our initial uh, response is to give fluids. But in this case, the uh, lungs may not, the right side of the heart may not be able to uh, handle that additional preload. So if I were to consider fluids, it would be very cautiously in very low doses and probably not my first choice. Uh, the second option would be to look at some type of vasopressor to uh, increase the afterload. And the first thought would be to use phenylephrine. The downside of using phenylephrine in a patient with pulmonary hypertension, though, 
is it also increases the pulmonary vascular resistance, which can make the right-sided heart failure uh, worse. Uh, so in this case, I would probably choose to use uh, vasopressin as my first choice because it would give me uh, systemic vascular vasoconstriction uh, and sparing and maybe even lead to some pulmonary vasodilatation. So that would probably be my, my first choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you bring up some really good points, especially about doing the pre-op workup with the cardiac echo and possibly avoiding this complication during surgery if we can. And also the point about vasopressin, I mean, you know, it would definitely be the first line of drug here in this scenario. But if obviously vasopressin is not available, the second line of drug you think would be phenylephrine? I would probably lean toward that, yes, if I, had, if I didn't have vasopressin available, but that would hopefully be my, uh, would be available to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a good case to begin with. Um, so just like hypertension, specific management of any patient will always depend on the presumed cause, the timing of intraoperative occurrence, and of course, the patient's pre-existing comorbidities. So let's start with talking about the etiology of hypotension. So unlike hypertension, there are a variety of conditions that can actually manifest as hypotension during anesthesia or even under local anesthetic procedures. Sure. And context is important uh, as to when these events occur. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably the most common thing that we see uh, leading to hypotension, uh, especially with local anesthesia or or before we ever give patients any medications at all, uh, would be a vasovagal episode with syncope. Uh, Especially, we see this in anxious patients, especially in males 18 to 35 years of age. Uh, And if you've got an EKG on them, what you'll notice is initially they become tachycardic. They sort of have that sympathetic surge followed by some vagal stimulation, and you'll start to see that bradycardia with a significant bradycardia, and they start to exhibit all the manifestations of uh, vasovagal syncope. Orthostatic hypotension is, is also another fairly common event that we can see if we're not careful with our patients, uh, and it has to do with just changes in posture or position, uh, going from sitting or lying down to sitting, sitting to standing, uh, number of medications, uh, most of the uh, hyper, antihypertensive medications, uh, most of our anesthetic drugs can all lead to orthostatic hypotension. Neurologic uh, cardiac phenomena can also contribute to it. So another mm-hmm. thing that we see and, and fortunately, fairly easy to treat. Set them back down. Uh, don't let them do a face plant. And giving the patients time to adjust to the altitude, basically. We've got pregnancy on, on our list of um, possible causes. Uh, baby laying on the inferior vena cava decreases uh, preload to the heart uh, by impeding venous return. can certainly cause it by changing the position of the patient, get the baby off the vena cava. You can improve the venous return to the heart. Mm-hmm. Hypovolemia is another uh, issue that can lead to uh, hypotension, especially in, in our patients who are NPO, along with patients who are taking diuretics, taking other medications that will um, decrease their, their volume status. Also, patients who, for whatever reason, have, uh, have some episodes of vomiting, diarrhea that uh, may present for, for anesthesia can lead to dehydration. Think about uh, medication-related, and most of the medications that we use, except for um, uh, ketamine, atomidate, uh, lead to a drop of blood pressure as we increase the dose of those medications, so they're going to vasodilate patients and, and lead to hypertension. And, and propofol uh, is especially notorious for this. You uh, mm-hmm. give a big dose of propofol, blood pressure drops out. And then uh, there are those patients who are taking the, uh, the ACE inhibitors and the ARBs that in uh, response to that in induction dose of propofol uh, may become hypotensive. Uh, 
which can lead some to some challenges to restoring that that blood pressure. And we'll talk about those a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that was a really good comprehensive list of isolated events. Um, what about um, hypotension that can manifest with other systemic conditions? Well, you know, if, we, if we look at patients' underlying systemic conditions, certainly cardiogenic issues, uh, a patient uh, who is, as this patient uh, that was presented, uh, uh, has underlying uh, significant cardiovascular disease, mm-hmm. uh, can certainly develop uh, hypotension under general anesthesia. Uh, monitoring the patient uh, for ischemic changes, especially with uh, lead to V456, uh, uh, can certainly uh, help us monitor for those ischemic changes. Uh, with pulmonary disease, think about uh, massive PE. Start considering uh, when we think about hypotension, think of those five uh, H's and T's, but uh, massive PE can certainly uh, present with um, with hypotension. Think about anaphylactic shock. That's probably one of the ones in our young, healthy patients when we start seeing hypotension, right. especially that isn't responding to those typical doses or the typical uh, medications that we want to start thinking about is this is this anaphylaxis, and always remember um, that when we're dealing with with infants and young children, if that's part of your practice, that uh, mm-hmm. they uh, are uh, almost entirely dependent at the start of their lives on heart rate, and so uh, as that heart rate starts to drop, their blood pressure starts to drop, and so we need to uh, to pay attention to heart rate uh, as a cause of hypotension. Yeah, and there's some absolutely. other causes. Uh, lidocaine toxicity certainly uh, can depress myocardial function, drop the blood pressure, cause some bradycardia. Cholinergic crisis: patients with uh, myasthenia gravis on anticholinesterase inhibitors such as pritostigmine can uh, develop a, a cholinergic crisis, uh, which will lead to hypotension. And then um, thyrotoxicosis, we typically think about manifesting as hypertension, but certainly uh, one of the effects can be hypotension with tachycardia, elevated temperature, uh, altered mental status. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a really good point um, about the thyrotoxicosis. And lidocaine toxicity is another one. We don't often think about it, but... And and certainly as we're looking at doing longer procedures in the office, we're looking at doing Mm -hmm. all on four cases and and we're using more and more local. That's probably one of those things that we really need to be aware of is our total dose of of lidocaine. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So oftentimes we practice hypotensive anesthesia safely for bigger surgeries like, you know, our MMA patients or orthodontic surgeries to have cleaner surgical field and less bleeding. But what, what are some of the concerns with untreated hypertension or when the MAP falls below 50? Certainly, um, well, in, in the MAP is a relative thing. I wanna say that first, for instance, this patient whose baseline blood pressure was running 170 over 90, mm-hmm. you know, a MAP of 50 in that patient would be severe, severe hypotension. And so we're looking at trying, if we're doing hypotensive anesthesia, we're trying to reduce that MAP uh, about uh, 30% of their baseline, and not much more than that, kind of a, as a max. But as we start to drop the blood pressure, the, our concerns become, uh, especially with the kidneys, the uh, renal tubular cells are probably the most metabolically active cells in the body. They have high energy demand, and they're very, very uh, easy to uh, to damage with uh, ischemic damage by uh, hypotension. Think about the cardiac effects. If we have uh, hypoperfusion of the heart, then we start thinking about are we going to see an acute coronary syndrome with myocardial ischemia, infarction, arrhythmias, even cardiac arrest. 
And then we think about the effects to the brain. If we're hypoperfusing our brain, are we going to lead to an ischemic stroke? Are we going to cause cognitive dysfunction in our older patients? So, so certainly we look at uh, those major organ systems when we start dropping the blood pressure as being potentially uh, uh, irreversibly damaged uh, right. by, by hypotensive episodes. Right. And which is why we need to act on it fast. So what are the steps to managing patients with hypotension? Well, I think the first thing is remember the context of the hypotension. You know, if I'm looking at hypotension in a trauma patient, then I'm thinking, is this a hypovolemic shock? Is this a neurogenic shock from a spinal cord injury? If this is a septic patient, am I thinking I'm looking at septic shock? Was this patient just given a, did I just push a bolus of propofol and all of a sudden their blood pressure dropped and this is kind of an expected response? Is this a cardiac patient? Uh, am I thinking about this might be a cardiac event that's contributing to my blood pressure? So, so first of all, think about the context of the hypotension. And then always remember the ABC. You know, in kids, we always say all things cardiac or respiratory until proven otherwise. We have to keep that in the back of our mind with adults mm-hmm. also that uh, hypoxia, hypercarbia, acidosis can lead to ultimately to hypotension. So as we think about air, those airway breathing, uh, and then we think about just a quick look at the monitor, what, what's happening on the EKG. Uh, is it a bradycardia? You know, cardiac output is uh, stroke volume times the heart rate, and if the heart rate significantly drops then uh, that could be causing a hypotension. This is a tachycardia. I always think of tachycardia as the flushing toilet syndrome. If you flush your toilet at home really fast, it doesn't have time for the reservoir to fill. Uh, so we have an inadequate preload. Atrial fibrillation, you, know, you lose 20, 25% of the, uh, that atrial kick, the uh, preload contribution of the, of the atrial contraction. Are there other arrhythmias that you see? Do you see evidence of some coronary event? Is there ischemia? or infarction uh, by EKG. So those are things to quickly look at and evaluate. Recheck the blood pressure. Is it spurious? I know in the office, mm-hmm. I've always got an assistant who's leaning up on the blood pressure cuff, and that's going to throw things off. And if we straighten the arm out, reposition the cuff because it got twisted, then uh, recheck it. And, and a lot mm-hmm. of times, that's that's the reason why we see it. And also, uh, this is minor, but also the size of the blood pressure cuff absolutely. will make all the difference. Absolutely. And then um, treat contributing factors. You know, did we, do, are we running them on an inhalational agent? Turn the inhalational agent mm-hmm. down. Do we have a pump? Turn the pump off or turn the pump down. And then think about optimizing the preload, uh, especially uh, patients who have been on diuretics, uh, medications that they're going to reduce their, their underlying volume. They've been vasodilated, and, and all of a sudden we're going to give them medications that vasodilate them even more. The volume in the tank is going to be less, so maybe we need to give fluids to optimize that preload. Uh, the other thing to think about, and you know, did you, are you stimulating the patient uh, as you just push that drug or you turn that drip on? You know, mm-hmm. if you start your surgery, you start uh, cutting. You know, is that sympathetic surge going to be enough to raise that blood pressure? And that may be all that you need to do if it's a, a minor drop. If if that doesn't help, uh, think about position. Do you put the patient in Trendelenburg with significant hypotension? Do mm-hmm. you do a leg lift? You know, those are a little bit controversial, and especially with significant hypertension, but might be right. something that will, a patient who becomes syncopal on you uh, will help in, improve cerebral blood flow. And then if just those minor things and running through that first uh, quick check of, uh, of uh, systems on the patient, uh, if that doesn't seem to help, then think about a fluid bolus. Uh, and typically, you think about 250 to 500 ml of either D5 or some kind of balanced saline or normal saline solution. In kids, uh, 10 milligrams per kilogram bolus to fill the tank and see their response. And that may be all that you need. But if they don't respond uh, or there's minimal response, then you want to start thinking about vasopressors or, or inotropes to, um, to help raise that blood pressure. In the office, we're thinking about push-dose pressors rather than hanging a drip. Hang a drip, you're probably going to need a pump. 
probably going to need to think about more invasive monitoring. But in the office, push dose pressures seem to work reasonably well. And so first thing to think about is something to squeeze the tank down a little bit. Phenylephrine is a pure alpha agonist. And um, the thing with that is it does increase your afterload. So it's going to make the heart work a little bit harder. And uh, sometimes uh, you'll get a reflex bradycardia. And we think about a reflex tachycardia with hypotension. Uh, But sometimes once you give the phenylephrine, the vasoconstrictor, you get a reflex bradycardia. Uh, ephedrine is another choice. Uh, it's an indirect acting agent that has some alpha and beta, and it increases the activity of norepinephrine and epinephrine at the receptor sites. And so um, you'll get both alpha and beta effects. At low doses, the beta effects predominate, so you're going to make the heart squeeze a little harder, beat a little faster. Uh, and that's kind of the question I ask myself before I give, if I'm going to give um, mm-hmm. uh, one or the other, is, is this a patient who will tolerate having their heart work a little bit harder to pump the blood a little bit more? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, the last, uh, the third choice in the office that we think about would be epinephrine. Epinephrine has both uh, alpha and, and beta 1, beta 2 effects. In low dose, the beta effects predominate. As you go up in higher doses, you're going to start to see more and more alpha effects with vasoconstriction. So uh, for the ease of understanding, um, I think we should divide the management of hypotension in four different categories, kind of like what we did with hypertension. So let's say a patient presents with hypotension with bradycardia in your office. What should be the agent of choice? Sure. If we, if we think about uh, the, the bradycardia, uh, first of all, we want to know what the blood pressure is. And that's the first thing to think about is, is do we have an adequate response? You have a patient who has a heart rate of 52, but they're a marathon runner and they've got a good blood pressure. No worries. You've got a patient who's got a heart rate of 52 and their blood pressure's uh, 70 over 30, a little more of a concern. So uh, we think about speeding the heart rate up. And and typically the drug that we use for this is atropine. And uh, the dosage is is 0.5 milligrams every three to five minutes up to a maximum of, of three milligrams. The interesting thing about it is atropine comes in a 0.4 milligram uh, per mL dosage, and that's the dose that we used to always give. But there mm-hmm. were some, there have been some reports um, of a paradoxical bradycardia when you give less than that 0.5 milligram uh, dosage, and so that's why the American Heart Association recommends now that you give 0.5 milligrams per mm-hmm. mL to increase the heart rate. It still comes in a 0.4 milligram. Yeah, it does. So so you have to give just a little more than an ML to get that 0.5. So you kind of eyeball it. So, uh, yes. uh, So, but I don't know why they've never ever made that change, but uh, I suspect (laughs) that's that's very interesting. Somebody has to change the packaging. (laughs) Um, Okay. So moving on, let's talk about patient that presents with hypotension and tachycardia. First of all, is it, is it a rebound tachycardia? Uh, and due to the hypotension, the heart's trying to work harder, trying to squeeze more blood around, uh, but maybe the tank is bigger, maybe we don't have enough fluid. We've already fluid loaded them as our first step, so we want to think about can we squeeze the tank down a little bit, and we don't want to increase the heart rate anymore, make the heart work any harder as far as pumping action, inotropy. So we want to think about maybe phenylephrine. So phenylephrine is an uh, alpha agonist, and sometimes as uh, we get some it's a reflex bradycardia in Again, one of the things about phenylephrine is you have to dilute it. Uh, it comes Twice. typically yeah. 10 milligrams per ml on this. And again, with drugs, always check. Always have this written out in your office. Have your card available so that you right. can check this. Because you don't want to, in an emergency, everything turns to mush, and you, you want to make sure you have accurate dosage. But typically, it's a double dilution. So you draw off one cc of saline out of a 10 cc vial, inject your one cc of um, phenylephrine, 1%, which is... Um, 
10 milligrams, as I, if I remember right, mm-hmm. at 10 milligrams per nml, and then you're going to shake that, draw off a cc, and inject it into another 9 cc of, of normal saline. So you double dilute it. And then um, uh, this will give you a, a dosage of uh, 0.1 milligram per ml increments. And you can give uh, increments uh, every two to three minutes, uh, which lasts for about uh, 15 minutes. So you want to give um, repeat boluses to and see the response to those boluses and repeat mm-hmm. those every couple of minutes. Yeah. I don't know why phenylephrine always comes as, you know, yes. that needs double dilution. <laughs> I yeah, wish I, they made something that was more yeah, readily pushable. Yeah. It's, it's kind of an odd thing that you have to do, but um, uh, that's traditionally how we've done it. I, I, right. I, that, I did that. As that's a how I did it in my training too. <laughs> I believe I've had to use it since. Yeah. So um, I've had to use it a couple of times, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it does take a double dilution. And we, we, in fact, that's one of the drugs that we keep in the room along with two vials of saline, uh, 10 okay. ml vials of saline plus two syringes so that mm-hmm. we can have all this uh, ready so that we don't have to send somebody down the hall looking right. for two vials of, of normal saline plus mm-hmm. a couple of syringes. So we keep that's one of those drugs that we keep chair side that we move into the room every time we have a patient that we're going to put to sleep so we have it available. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, so how about a patient that has hypertension with normal heart rate or bradycardia? So, so if this is somebody with bradycardia, we talked a little bit about uh, should we try atropine first. Mm-hmm. The other thought is, is if we want to to get some alpha and beta effects, we may think about ephedrine. Uh, interestingly, emergency room folks tend to not use ephedrine. Anesthesia folks tend to use ephedrine. Right. And I think that's kind of our training is is to. Is based on the right. spending our time with the anesthesia folks that we use an, ephedrine for our alpha and beta effects, and they're indirect acting. So, a patient who's been sick for a long time, when you think about in a hospital setting, uh, may be catechol deplete, and so it may not have, be effective in in raising the blood pressure, but uh, it increases the effectiveness of um, epinephrine and norepinephrine at the receptor sites. So, mm-hmm. and, and again, this is another drug that we have to dilute, uh, and typically will dilute. Uh, one cc with nine cc's of normal saline. So again, draw off one cc, inject uh, one cc uh, uh, of the ephedrine, mm-hmm. uh, and this will give you uh, five milligrams. Is it right? It'll give you yeah, it's a fifty milligram. It'll give you five milligrams per cc, and then inject five milligrams every five to ten minutes. Evaluate mm-hmm. the patient's response, and you should see an increase in blood pressure and increase in heart rate to help. Mm-hmm. And this is probably something we're likely to see, um, allergic reaction, but what if it goes into an anaphylactic reaction and patient's hypotensive now? So, and again, this is one of those things that, um, that we should have on the back of our mind because uh, mm-hmm. anaphylactic reactions, when you start looking at under anesthesia, it may be the only sign we see with anaphylaxis. We don't have a patient who's complaining that they're itching, that they're having trouble breathing. Right. Yeah. Uh, you may or may not hear wheezing. Uh, breath sounds might be a little distant. And patients are usually covered with drapes if we're in the operating room. And when you start looking at causes of, of uh, allergic reaction or anaphylactic reactions in the OR, you know, you think about uh, antibiotics, you think about um, some of the muscle relaxant drugs are, are pretty common offenders. So definitely needs to be on your differential diagnosis list. And, and one of those things that, if untreated, uh, can have se- uh, severe, severe outcomes. Uh, it's not one of those things that's going to wait till somebody gets to the hospital. Right. It's something you need to treat. Right. And so we're going to think about epinephrine uh, mm-hmm. to treat these folks. And so um, as we're looking at epinephrine, you can give it IM or you can give it IV. The advantage of giving it IM is if you don't have that, a vein, which hopefully you would have, 
if if you lost an IV, it would, might be hard to restart an IV on somebody who's severely hypotensive. So mm-hmm. IM in the lateral thigh uh, is absorbed fairly rapidly. Uh, you give a much larger dose. Uh, so you're giving mm-hmm. 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams IM. The other advantage of giving the IM is that because it is a larger dose, it's slowly absorbed. Uh, if we think about uh, epinephrine in a, in a code situation, a cardiac arrest, mm-hmm. we're redosing every three to five minutes because it's broken down fairly rapidly in the body. So if we give an IV dose of epinephrine, uh, it a much uh, much more quickly dissipated. So you can have a recadescence or a recurrence of, of that anaphylactic reaction as the epinephrine is broken down. So so mm-hmm. IM may be a may, way to go, but you can also give it as push dose. And if you're going to give IV, the way I think of it is the one to a thousand is is IM. The one to ten thousand, which is ten cc's, is IV. They both have one milligram. But if you think about it, you can't give that large volume. And if you give that small volume, IV, then you may get yourself into trouble because you're going to have a fairly concentrated dosage, which is going to have some effects that you may not want to have. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. uh, so it's a much, much smaller dose. So you take that one to 10,000 dose and similar to the ephedrine, you draw off one cc, add it to nine cc's, and that's going to give you a 10 mics per ml. So you can get much easier to titrate that and start out 10 to 20 mics IV, which will give you an immediate response but you may have to redose that. So you kind of have to watch the patients. And you may want to think about, do you start a drip? Uh, is this somebody that you need to send to the ER mm-hmm. to be evaluated and, and, and worked up to make sure that that's the only thing going on? Right. Yeah. If you do start a drip, you better transfer the patient to Absolutely. ER. So lastly, I wanted to just address the special category of patients who are hypotensive related to ACE inhibitors or ARBs. Um, how do we manage those? So there's been a lot of debate in the literature over the past uh, number of years since these drugs were introduced, whether you should, you should continue them or stop them. Uh, you can pick your paper. But uh, the things that we do know that with ACE and with especially with ARBs is, one, they dampen the sympathetic response. So they sort of blunt the response to epinephrine, norepinephrine. Uh, the second thing is a volume deplete patient. So we talk about diuretics, but we don't think about too much with uh, the patients who are on ACE inhibitors and ARBs is that we're releasing aldosterone, uh, which is causing them to uh, lose sodium and lose water. So they're dehydrated. Mm-hmm. The uh, uh, third thing that they do is that they block the direct vasal uh, constrictive effects of angiotensin II. So it kind of works with a triple whammy. And then the, um, uh, because of the effects on the sympathetic receptors and vasopressors such as epinephrine, ephedrine, uh, phenylephrine do not work very well. Uh, mm-hmm. So even we do try our traditional uh, things that we would use, they don't work very well, unfortunately, when, when these patients develop hypotension. And again, context, there seems to be more issues with hypotension with higher doses of propofol. There seem to be more issues with hypotensions in patients who are on ACE inhibitors plus a diuretic. So, uh, so those are things that uh, can increase this hypotension and it can be sustained and very difficult to treat. And in fact, there are some of those cases, if you look at, at the case reports, they go on for 30 to 45 minutes to an hour of a significant hypotension. Uh, not a good thing. In case uh, of a patient who's developed uh, hypotension relative to m- continuing his uh, ACE or ARB drugs, uh, vasopressin is an alternative uh, because that system is probably the only system that they have left intact to uh, yeah. uh, to to, to uh, restart. And so there are some different dosing protocols for um, giving vasopressin. 
One protocol is to give uh, 0.4 units every 10 minutes. And if that's ineffective, to increase it up to two units every 10 minutes mm-hmm. or start an infusion of vasopressin, which is more of how I've heard it done, uh, 0.01 to 0.4 units per minute dosing. So you can increase it. Vasopressin has a fairly short half-life. Uh, so once you turn off the drip, it um, at least the vasoactive effects are short-lived. The renal effects, though, are, are longer-lived. So it may be a patient who has to be diuresed or at least fluid-restricted uh, mm-hmm. operatively. And you want to monitor their renal perfusion or at least their urine output uh, perioperatively and, and their right. renal function. Do you keep vasopressin in the office? I have the forty the the, the dosage for the forty units for uh, ACLS. ACLS, which yeah, they no, don't use anymore. That's <laughs> in in I, I probably we'll we'll see with my next uh, round of ACLS whether we continue to stock that in the office because I've never had uh-huh. to use it. So knock on wood. <laughs> so yeah, so let's talk about what happens when we get into deep waters and have refractory hypertension in our hands? How do we manage these patients? So, I I mean, I think the first thing to think about is what are the other causes? What else is going on here? Are we missing something? You know, is this a Mm -hmm. pump failure problem? Is this a patient who's got a myocardial infarction? You know, as as we've said, uh, always consider anaphylaxis uh, with hypotension that's not responding to your usual measures. Look for evidence of uh, lesions on the skin hives, um, listen uh, carefully for evidence of wheezing, but think about uh, anaphylaxis, think about heart failure, think about PE. Mm-hmm. You know, most patients are going to respond to fluid boluses or vasopressors with phenylephrine, ephedrine, uh, you know, but if they're ineffective, you know, think about epinephrine. And as we talked, you can give it IV, IM, you mm-hmm. know, and if that doesn't work, you know, you can think about hanging the drip. Yeah, but I think realistically, if the patient's not improving, you need to call in the cavalry, call 911. Let's get the mm-hmm. patient to a testing center or a, uh, an emergency room where we can do invasive testing, where we can do, uh, where we Good have additional therapy. resources to do right. what we need to do to, to revive the patient. Absolutely. Well, I think we had another great talk today. There was That was really short, but I think we hit all the major points on etiology and management and what drugs to use and what scenario. So I think it was pretty nice, comprehensive talk. And as always, I would say is you need your, your index cards, your, your mental right. preferences, whatever you need. If you're going to start pushing drugs, never give mm-hmm. a strange drug. If for those of you who are Amos members, I know a few years back, Amos had a program where you could print up labels to stick on your individual vials, which told you how much uh, of that medication to start with uh, as far as dosing goes. And, and those kind of mental cues are, are, are real important uh, is that your brain turns to mush if things are starting to fall apart. So real yeah. important to have those available. I agree. Well, thank you, Dr. Harper, for joining us again today on our podcast. Always a pleasure. So next time, do another topic in cardiac emergencies during anesthesia in oral maxillofacial surgery. So if you enjoyed this talk today, please give us a five-star review and follow us on Instagram. We will take your leave now. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.